I'm so excited. I'm delighted to be able to introduce your speaker for this morning. Um, he's one of my very best friends, not the one that I'm married to, but another one. Um, you know, when I see those two stand up here and knowing their story, it just reminds me so much of my own life and, and what a mess I was. When I first came to the Lord, I was a wreck. And uh, the scripture that says, whoever is forgiven much loves much. I really think that that's true of our lives. And uh, when I first came to the Lord, um, God was faithful to bring me uh, a really dear friend. And he also had been forgiven much. Mm -hmm. His name is Ira Popper. Actually, I think you were probably even forgiven more than me, huh? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but Ira is one of the most sincere and passionate and consistent and loyal and faithful people on the face of the earth. And he is passionate about one thing and one thing only, and that is expanding the kingdom of heaven. And last March, I had the privilege of going to Israel. And last month, Ira had the privilege of going to Israel. So this morning, he's going to come and share some of his experiences and some of the profundity uh, as, a, as a Jewish person going back to Israel and how that impacted him and how it relates to worship today. So would you please join me and warmly welcome our lovely Pastor Ira. Thanks, Jared. Love you. Good morning. It's always great to have your close friend introduce you. Don't believe all the press. <laughs> all right, it's good to have you here today. Shalom. See you later. That's what it means, right? It means hello, goodbye, and peace. Well, I get to share on, on this great trip I got invited to. And, you know, I went with a group called uh, Christians United for Israel. And uh, this group uh, is, is really there to help uh, strengthen support for Israel and uh, to help Christians understand the importance of, uh, of supporting this country as far as uh, free rights go, as far as freedom of religion and things like that. So uh, it, was, it was an amazing trip. And you know, uh, I got offered the trip, and it was it, it was basically free, and I prayed about it for three seconds <laughs> and said, yes, <laughs> I'll go for free to Israel. <laughs> this Jewish guy that's been hoping to go to Israel for so long is, uh, is, is finally going, and I just had to suppress the excitement that I had. Everybody said, are you excited? Are you excited? I was too excited to let the excitement out. That's how excited I was. But now, now I got to go. And here you see, I'm, what I'm going to do today is go through several slides of, of places that I've been and some of the things the Lord spoke to me in those places. And then, then we're going to get to a point where God spoke to me something very significant that I think is not just for me, but it's also for us. So I'd like to be able to share about that. We're, we're in this year of prayer, and uh, tonight, today I'm going to really focus on worship which is the essence of prayer. It is the key of prayer. 
And, and so it is the, pr the, pr the primacy of prayer is first in worship. And so we're going to talk a little about that too. So in this first slide, I'm not even off the plane yet. The thing about going to Israel on a plane, how many of you have been to Israel? Not too many. How many of you would like to go to Israel? Good. We might go someday. That'd be cool, huh? So when you go to Israel and you go on the El Al airline, the, the Israeli airline, you, as you're getting closer, the closer you get, the more intense it gets on the plane. People are excited. People that have never been to Israel before are really excited because this is the spiritual center of the universe. This is where God did all this communication to people about his love and his passion was in the Middle East, in Israel and the surrounding areas. And, and so everyone, whether they're a Jew or they're a Christian or even Muslim, are excited to get to this place. So the intensity on the plane is growing. You can, you can almost, it's palpable. You can almost, you can almost feel it. And uh, so here we are. We're starting to descend now. And, and, and the, you know, the little dinger is going saying you need to put on your seatbelt. And I have this Jewish guy come up to me. He's, he's in a full Jewish gear, which, you know, includes... Um, a hat and includes the the little uh, tails of of hair which are there because of the scripture that says don't shave your face and it has a he has a talit on with tassels and a dark coat and and then he comes and he and he says are you Jewish and I said what am I chopped liver <laughs> and so he said okay so can I put this on you and what it was is the tefillin, or the phylacteries, as they're also known. You can't really see this too much in this picture, even though I lightened it. But you can see a little box on my head and also a strap around my arm. And that's from Deuteronomy 6, where it talks about tie these around your arm, bind these on your forehead. And it's the word of God being so true. And so I thought to myself, okay, this is really strange. I didn't expect it, but this is exactly the way I should start my trip to Israel. And so I totally enjoyed it. You could tell I was really excited about this, considering it was a 14-hour flight, and I still look like that. That was amazing. <laughs> Coming back is another story. This is our whole group uh, as landing in Israel, the, the Christians United for Israel group, almost 40 pastors and a bunch of leaders. Our first spot that we went to, <coughs> we went to the... The, the north of the country, uh, in, in the Galilee area. This is where Jesus spent most of his ministry time, was in Galilee. And off of Galilee, uh, up, on the, on, up higher on the banks, the higher part of the banks, uh, are the hillsides where he taught the Beatitudes. And this is that hillside. And uh, it's, it's just a, a wonderful thing to think that, you know, when it says in, in the scriptures that Jesus saw all the people and he sat them down and then he sat down and he start, started teaching and he taught this. Blessed are the clean of heart for they will see God. And this is that, this is that mountainside right there. And uh, every time I, I read this scripture now, uh, it becomes three-dimensional for me because I could see thousands of people sitting on this this very organic, uh, nature-made um, kind of um, a theater, natural theater, where, where Jesus could sit and his voice could carry. And uh, that's, that's where this took place. 
And then Capernaum is a town where he did a ton of ministry. There were many people healed. A blind man was healed. A man who was lowered down on a pallet through a house was healed. And then Peter's uh, mother-in-law was healed. May he didn't necessarily want his mother-in-law healed. I don't know. But she got healed anyway. And that's this place right here. Um, this is, there's a church that's built over it to protect it, but this is the ruin of the place where Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, came and said, be healed, and she was healed. What a radical thing to experience, huh? This is the sanctuary where Jesus taught in Capernaum, and people were healed, and he taught out of the Word of God. After Capernaum, we, we, we went, we had several special side trips, and this is one of them. This guy is a lieutenant in the Israeli army. He's in the security and uh, intelligence area. And he brought us to give us a briefing in the Golan Heights. If you know where that is, the Golan Heights is in the very northern part of Israel, and it's uh, at the very top on the border with Syria. And, and so we went there to find the thing that you cannot find in Utah. Snow. <laughs> there was a foot of snow on the Golan Heights. And uh, so we actually had to stop driving any further. We were going to go straight to the border. But instead, we got our briefing right about at this point. And, uh, and then we went home uh, or went to our next stop. But um, uh, when, we, when we got back, the next day, it was in the paper, that the Israeli army had killed six Hezbollah terrorists just on the other side of that border. We're just talking about hundreds of feet away from where we were that day. It was in the newspaper. So it, it, it was an amazing thing to understand that these things are not just in the newspaper. Just like the things that we're going to look at in the Bible are not just printed down. They're actually three-dimensional. They actually had a moment in time where they happened and a place in time where we can look back to and understand that that is the place where Jesus died. That is the place where he rose. That is the place where he had the Last Supper. These things. We can also see that this is the place where there is a great spiritual struggle between good and evil. And it, it, it's, it's in Israel today. And so we, we had that experience as well. These are some of the soldiers that we were introduced to, the, 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 the boys, and they really are boys, or, or just teenagers, and they have to serve for three years. The girls have to serve for two years. Uh, this is, um, he is also a, um, a security officer for the kibbutz that is right next door to the border, which is, this is where we're at now. Uh, anybody know what a kibbutz is? A kibbutz is a commune. It's a place over 100 years ago where Jews decided, you know what, we need to come back and reclaim our land, but we can't do it by ourselves as individuals. We're going to have to do it as a team. And so they started communes, literally places where everybody collected everything together. They worked together. They brought the prophets together. They made decisions together. The kids were cared for together. It was a very unique environment. It exists today. There's over 300 communes in Israel. And that's why Israel is so developed, because these communes just went crazy developing farmland. It is one of the most fruitful places on earth. I was shocked to see, I think everybody, one of the things that everybody was the most surprised at is the incredible lush 
farmland that was there and the, the date palms that were growing, uh, miles and miles of date palm farms that were growing all over the place and, and other types of fruit. So it was an amazing thing, and that's because of the kibbutz. And this kibbutz, like all kibbutz, has a, um, a bomb shelter, and this is the bomb shelter for the kids, for the kids. So uh, in their nursery environment, so they wouldn't have to run too far to another bomb shelter. This is the bomb shelter that they would go to with their teachers. And you can also see a bomb that, that had exploded several years earlier uh, in their midst in this, uh, in this kibbutz. Now we're on the Sea of Galilee where Jesus taught, where Jesus told the disciples, go fish over there. Let's see what you can catch where Jesus asked Peter, come, follow me. He called all of the disciples. But he also called Peter in a special way on the water. He said, come, walk on this water. Come to me. And Peter was walking on the water until he saw the storm that was around him. And Jesus lifted him up and picked him up. It was an amazing place to be on. It was mystical in the way it looked. It was, there was a mist and it was a fog, and you could see the sun shining through. And it was so easy to picture Jesus ministering on this boat or on the seashore, which he did for so many times. This is a boat that was discovered. It's a 2,000-year-old boat. Wood is not supposed to last that long, especially if it's wet. But this was discovered uh, about 10 years ago. It took two years to... Uh, to fix so that it wouldn't fall apart. Matter of fact, it needed to live in water until they figured out a way to fix it. Otherwise, it would turn into a powder. That's what wood does. And so this is a 2,000-year-old fishing boat. It's surrounded by this skeleton of metal to hold it together. Um, it has over 12 woods that are used on it. There was one wood that was built with, and then there were several other woods that were used to repair it. And at some point, they decided... This is irreparable. So they let it sink, and that's why we got to see it today. Okay, so I thought I'd put in the picture to scare you. This is not the Loch Ness Monster. This is Ira on the Dead Sea. I decided not to put a close-up. You can thank me later. <laughs> the Dead Sea is a cool place, and uh, it, it, it borders quite a few areas that, we, that are important places. The Dead Sea does not have that much importance except for um, just the, its unique attributes uh, in that uh, when the salt lake is 10% salt, and, and that's an extreme amount of salt, as we know, the, salt, uh, the Dead Sea is 33% salt. And because of that, it's impossible to sink. As a matter of fact, it's impossible to do anything except one thing, lie on your back like this. That's all you can do is lie on your back. You try to lie on your stomach, it flips you over. On the side, flips you over. You can do nothing but lie on your back and just wonder, what am I doing in the middle of this lake? <laughs> but it's really good for your skin, so my wife was really happy when I came home. It's a very cool place to go. This is the Jordan River. And the Jordan River uh, goes from the Sea of Galilee at its north all the way to the Dead Sea at its south. It empties into the Sea of Galilee. And, and so that's how these waters 
work. And when you think of them within the context of the Bible, you can think of them like that. And uh, Jordan River is obviously where Jesus was baptized, where John the Baptist baptized. And uh, they don't know exactly where on the river, but somewhere on the river this happened. And I was amazed to see how just lush everything was and how beautiful it was. And I can imagine Jesus receiving the Holy Spirit as he's coming out of the water in this environment. Can you? All right. Uh, if you know Greg Johnson, he's one of the pastors in our area. That's him on a camel. And I just thought I'd throw that in because he looks so funny. And <laughs> these, are, these are camels that are being raised by Bedouins. There are Bedouin tribes all over the country. Their job is to uh, raise animals and, uh, and uh, have lots of wives. That's what it is. They're supposed to have several wives, and, and uh, it sounds like another culture. <laughs> and, and, and so they ha- it, it's, a very, it's a very unique culture, and they just move from place to place where the animals need to graze, and, um, and they're not very connected with the culture in general, but, but um, they do have, there's thousands of them throughout the, throughout the country. This is Masada. How many of you know what Masada is? Masada, uh, um, King Herod the Great was the king that was around, uh, that was running uh, that area of Palestine uh, when Jesus was born and before Jesus was born, little after Jesus was born. And he was a megalomaniac, a crazy man who would had an incredible amount of power because of his wealth and also because he was able to control the countryside, which was not easy to do. There were kings before him. They get replaced on a daily basis because of how badly they, they handled the locals. But Herod got it down, figured it out. So he was in power for decades. And during that powerful reign, he was able to raise a ton of money by building uh, a port called Caesarea. And uh, and ton of taxes came in through there. And through all that money, he built nine fortresses that would protect him if he was ever attacked. Nine fortresses. Uh, we're looking at one of them today, right now. Uh, you can't see it very well because it is at the very, very pinnacle of that mountain. We're talking thousands of feet up in the air. 2,000 years ago, this crazy man built a place to go to to escape. And I want to show you what some of it looks like because it's just amazing. You can see here just the, the desert that surrounds it and uh, how high we are at that point. That's kind of a diagram of, of what, was di- what was built. You could also see on, on the top right going, going towards the right, you could see that all the way down that mountain on that slope, that's where the uh, Roman bathhouse was. And it had a great view and it was very lavish. And you can see here some of the storehouses, and you can see where the storehouses are kind of laterally on, on this model as well. So this, this man just went absolutely crazy. This is one of nine. Why is this is an important place is um, uh, because what happened, uh, Herod died uh, uh, and before the 70s, before, before the temple was destroyed. And it was during that time that uh, the Jews were very afraid in this one town. They were going to 
you know, be taken captive, taken to be slaves. And so they went up to Masada, a thousand of them, and they, and they held up in Masada for three years. During that time, the Romans knew they were there, and they built a, a way to get up. To, it took them three years to do it, to get up to attack them, to take them captive, to take back the fortress. And so it was during that time that towards the end of the time that the Jews realized, that's it. We are either going to be killed or taken slaves. Our children and wives are going to be brutally hurt and abused. And so we're going to take things into our own hands. And so they elected 10 men that basically let everyone else go and, and, and they, they uh, killed everyone those 10 men, and then those one man out of the 10 killed the 10, the 9, and then that one person uh, killed themselves. And uh, they left all the food. They left all the drink, and there was a lot of water. And they did that. They burned everything else. They destroyed everything else to prove to Rome that they did not die because of lack of hope or lack of need or, or because of need. They died because they wanted to um, protect their families from what was going coming. So that is why this is a national monument today. You can imagine just great courage in these uh, Jews for, for um, three years. Now we're getting to Jerusalem, and what an amazing thing to just see this picture as you turn the corner in Jerusalem. I was literally just blown away by by seeing it and recognizing that, you know, this is uh, just a dream for me personally. But to, th- to think about what this place is, to think about how often it was written about in Scripture, to think about the fact that there is a new Jerusalem that's going to come that is heaven to us. So this place has intense significance for us as Christians, and obviously intense significance for me as a Jew as well. First place we went was to the Garden of Gethsemane. The Garden of Gethsemane is right off of the Mount of Olives where, where Jesus taught and Jesus walked. And these are some trees that are, there's lots of trees uh, in the garden as well. These trees are about 2,000 years old. I didn't know olive trees grew that, that old, but they do. And uh, you can see how wide they are. They're just incredibly wide. And what happens is another, one part dies and another sprig comes up to take its place. You can see some sprigs in this picture right here. So this is in the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus prayed the night he was betrayed and where he was betrayed. This is in the church. The church covers this. This is called the Rock of Agony. This is the place. There's no dispute. This is the place where Jesus said, disciples, pray, stay awake and pray. I'm going to pray here. And this is where Jesus threw himself on this rock and asked God to give him strength and said, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And you can see me in this picture. 
as I touch this rock that was just the prayer of my heart, as we, as we go through this year of prayer, and as I talk about prayer a little more today, it was the cry of my heart, God, teach me to pray, teach me to pray. We are such a prayerless people. You can imagine Jesus just on this rock offering himself to God and saying, I don't know why this is happening or how this is happening. He knew why. But not my will, but yours be done. I give my life to you. You guys want to pray like that? Is that, one, is that your prayer? This is, should be our prayer as a church. Lord, teach us to pray. Can we just like extend our hands? Just I know this is just a picture. Just extend your hand. Just this is our imaginations right now. We're touching that rock that Jesus touched. He was lying on that rock. That rock has no special significance except for the fact that this is where Jesus prayed. And Lord, we just come before you right now. We ask as a church that we would be a church that prayed. Lord, that we would understand what that means, that it's not just a prayer at a meal or a prayer at a service. It is a lifestyle of prayer. And Lord, that it starts with worship. Lord, teach us to pray. The disciples said that after years of being with you. Why? Because it ain't easy. So teach us to pray. The easiest thing in the world to talk to you it's not that easy to understand. So, Lord, teach us to pray. Do you guys agree? Amen. Amen. This is Bethesda. This is the sheep's gate. The sheep's gate. This is where the sheep would come and drink water. All the sheep for the sacrifice would come here and drink water. And then they would be used in the sacrifice in the temple, just not very far away. I, I, I learned a fact. Do you know where all the sheep came from, from the sacrifice? Where Jesus was born. You think that's kind of interesting? Yeah. That's where the sheep came from, for the sacrifice in the temple. So this is where uh, the gentleman uh, was sitting who needed, he had been sitting for years and years and he needed to be healed and he couldn't get to the water soon enough because when the water was stirred, supposedly that's when the healing would take place and Jesus said, do you want to be healed? And he said, yes. He said, get up, take your mat and walk. And that's where that took place. Isn't that cool? Now we're at the room of the Last Supper. The room that you see here is, is above that room because this room was built um, many years later. But the, the room, they believe, is underneath uh, uh, these rooms uh, where the Last Supper and, and, the, and Pentecost took place. And I'll tell you, there is nothing like being in the room that they're saying is the Last Supper and the upper room and as a Christian, worshiping in the Spirit. That was awesome, to be able to just worship God in this room where the Holy Spirit fell, where Jesus gave communion and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. It was an incredibly powerful time. One place that I was surprised how 
much impact it had on me was Caiaphas's house. Caiaphas was the high priest. When Jesus uh, was, being, uh, was being put on trial, this is the house he went to. And uh, he would be tried here hastily, late in the evening, because it was getting too late to do anything else. And here you can see a place where ropes would be kept, where you would tie up the prisoner to beat the prisoner. Here you see steps going down to the, the vault, the, the, um, the dungeon in Caiaphas' house for prisoners that would have to reside and stay overnight until they could be transferred to the place where they need to go. And this is that dungeon right there. It's about 15 feet by 15 feet. And you can imagine in the dark the real possibility of Jesus after he was tried he couldn't have been moved to the, the next stage of, of what would take place because it was too late. So he probably was kept in this dungeon, completely dark, rats everywhere, and just alone with God. And us pastors, we worship the Lord here. It's an amazing thing to think about Jesus being there. These are the steps that Jesus walked on at least three times that night, the night he was betrayed. He walked on those steps. He walked on those steps. This is Jesus Christ. You know, things become very real when you go there. One thing I learned is, is that when you read the Bible, it becomes very 3D because of this, because now I know exactly where Jesus went during that night or where he got baptized or the upper room or you'll see in the minute the tomb. But one thing... I learned, and I, I was thinking, gee, I wonder if God's going to be more real to me. Guess what? God was not more real to me. You know why? Because he's right here. He's right here, and there is no more real reality than that, is the Holy Spirit living inside of you. You guys enjoying this? Okay. So this is the garden tomb. There are two places that they think where Jesus was buried where he died and was buried. It's not definitive. We are talking 2,000 years ago. We're talking Rome, you know, kicking everybody out and all kinds of destruction that took place. So they, they had to, and I'm really glad that they are, that when they don't know for sure, they say that. Aren't you glad? Because that, that way, the ones that they are for sure about, you can, you can rely on those. And the ones that are not, you can speculate a little about. The garden tomb is definitive, but not to the point where they would say, this is it. So that's why I'm telling you this. And this is a Golgotha, the place of the skull, right where Jesus would have been crucified. You could see the two eyes in that stone right there. It's not the best picture. So what I did was, uh, because of the light, it was at the wrong time of day. So here's a picture of a picture from the early 60s or, or 50s. And you could see those two eyes in that rock. Can you see it? the place of the skull where Jesus was crucified, right below it. And then here's the tomb. The rocks the, the um, rocks on the side were, that are square, those were added because of an earthquake. But otherwise, the, the hole for the tomb was much, much smaller. It says the disciples had to bend down and get in to look, and that they looked over to the side, and they saw Jesus. And that's exactly what they did. They saw Jesus over the side. This is over to the right, and on the top left is where Jesus' body would be laid. 
You know what I learned about the tomb? He's not there. <laughs> He's risen. He has risen. You know how many people were around back then that would have given their eye teeth to find his body? Yes? There were people all over that city. And this tomb was, was, was very clearly marked, whichever one it was, as the tomb where Jesus Christ was. And they never found his body. Amen? That is so cool. He's risen. Here we are as a team right in the face of Israel and as we, as, uh, Jerusalem. As we get to Jerusalem, I just want to give you a little um, orientation. Here is the Temple Mount uh, where uh, the temple would have been. It would have stood right where that gold dome is. That's where the temple would have been. The, the, the wall around the temple is this square wall uh, outside of where the trees are. You can see it. The, the wailing wall, or the western wall, is in the bottom left side. It's just a teeny, teeny little portion uh, of this wall. This is a very large uh, mount, and, and so that wall is around there. And then uh, what you can see here, what I'm trying to show you, is that same picture but at a different angle. So you could see, see where it goes up there. That's, that's the gate. That's called the Golden Gate. I think I have another picture of it. See the Golden Gate. It's in line directly with the, uh, the Dome of the Rock, the Muslim Dome of the Rock, right over the, where the temple would be. And it is, it is covered up and has been for centuries. This is because Jews and Christians believe that Jesus Christ is going to enter through these gates. He's going to come down the Mount of Olives, and I'm not going to go into this, but it is a very definitive um, uh, theological thought for Jews, enough so that there are tens of thousands of bodies um, that are right there on the Mount of Olives buried because they believe that the Messiah is going to come through the Mount of Olives. He's going to walk uh, uh, that triumphal um, path again. He, there, he is going to go through the, that gate that has been closed up, and he's going to walk straight because that's what the path is straight into the temple, straight into the holy place, and straight into the Holy of Holies. That's what they believe. And so the Muslims have clogged it up. This is the, the, the wailing wall, the, the place of uh, crying, the place of prayer for Jews. And for me, it was uh, an amazing experience to just have thousands of years of my heritage just collide in with this incredibly vibrant faith of knowing Jesus as Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah, People asked me hours later what it was like, and I, I really couldn't talk. It was, it was uh, astounding, astounding to be there. For me, for me, it was astounding. I think all the Christians had a, an amazing experience with God there too. But for me, you know, I brought my, uh, 
I brought my prayer shawl. You can see me with my yarmulke and my prayer shawl. And that was from my bar mitzvah. So I had my father's yarmulke and my, my own prayer shawl. And I had my grandfather's bag that it was given to me at my bar mitzvah that put these in. And I brought them to the uh, to this place, you know, where, where throughout history, God said, this is the place where you come pray. This is the place that will teach you about Jesus, my son, the sacrifice. And so it was very powerful for me. What I, this is what it looks like on, on Sabbath. It's, a, it's packed out and it's frenetic and it's intense. And even, even when it's not on the Sabbath, it is, it is just full of Jews and they're, they're praying, they're praying, they're praying. And it's a, it's a very physicalization, a physicalized prayer. They're doing this. This is called davening. It's an act of just, this is part of my prayer. It's part of my prayer and humbling myself. And, and Greg and I were watching and, and sensing. And for me, I was very confused at this point because I was having an outrageously real experience with God. But I did not, although I saw a lot of energy being expended, I did not see the Spirit of God. I did not. And it, it troubled me, and Greg and I talked about it for a while, and then we collapsed and went to our own rooms and went to bed. And, and when, I, when I went to sleep... God really spoke to me, and he, he, he spoke to me this scripture. I, I, I literally was in bed asleep, and this scripture just was bearing down on me. It was like God was just weeping over Israel. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often... I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you are not willing. This is the heart of Jesus. This is the heart of Jesus for the Jews, for Jerusalem. But it is also the heart of Jesus for us. If you don't know Jesus right now, this is God's heart. He wants to gather you to himself. When he cries out, instead of saying Jerusalem, he says your name. He wants you so much to be in relationship with him that he died on the cross so that you can have restored relationship. For us as Christians, this is the heart of God that he just wants to bring us in and be that mama, mama hen to us but you were not willing. And then it says, look, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The house being desolate. And then he prophesies the destruction of the temple. When Jesus talks about desolation, he is not talking about destruction. You see, he separated the two here. 
This is the place that Jesus Christ said, this is my father's house. To his parents, he said, don't you know I need to be here? I need to be here. I need to be in God's presence. And then with the the money changers, he was furious with them. This was the house of God, the presence of God, and Jesus is prophesying this place will be desolate, deserted. Deserted of what? The presence of God, the very presence of God until, until. There's an until there, aren't you glad? Until, until. You receive me as Lord. Until you receive Jesus as Lord, we are desolate without the Spirit of God. We were created to have the Spirit of God live in us. The Bible says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. So when you think about the temple being destroyed, know that God is rebuilding his temple. And it's in us. We are his temple. Every person who comes to faith in Christ, that desolate place is now ignited with the presence of the living God. And you know the that presence, the, the, the light, the eternal light that was in the, in the temple represents that presence. That eternal light, it doesn't need to be represented in us anymore because it is the light of God. We get to experience that. But what happens? What happens when a temple is destroyed and a temple is laid desolate? What do people do? They start looking for something else that could possibly be a substitute. To be a substitute. And that's what I saw that day in the wall. It was a substitute. There is no substitute for the presence of God. There is no substitute. You could try all you want. You could try with money. You could try with fame. You could try with power. You could try with just everyday life. Hey, I want to build a good life. You could try in all these ways, but there is no substitute for the presence of God. This is Moses' cry. If your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. How will anyone know that you are pleased with me and with your people unless you go with us? What else will distinguish me and your people from all the other people on the face of the earth? And worship is the first step in a life of someone who wants to be prayerful. Worship is the first step for those that now they had a a desolation in their lives, but now God is filling them with the Spirit of God. Worship is not just 
for us as individuals. Worship is something corporate where the presence of God shows up. Didn't the presence of God show up as we worship today? You know, it, 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 talks, about the, it talks about what happened in the temple and, and how the, the priests, they could not even stand to minister because of the presence of God when they dedicated the temple. This is, the, this is the, what worship is all about, being, being in God's presence, experiencing him and giving him glory. So I want to very quickly give you four points about worship. The first one is bend your knee daily. Scripture says, from the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. We need, we need to bend our knee daily from when the time you get up to the time you go to bed. It is not extreme. It is not extreme to praise God. Jews pray three times a day. Muslims pray three times a day. They actually stop what they're doing and do things that, that are prayer. Doesn't it make sense that we would be prayerful and bend our knees each and every day. Why should we do that? Because our flesh is powerful, but the Spirit of God is more. And so all day, every day, Jesus, you are my Lord. You are my King. You guide my life. You are the one. You are the King of kings, my King of kings. You are my Lord of lords. Doing that every day is an essential act for every Christian. You're going to do it in different ways, a multitude of ways. But you must bend your knee every day to the Lord. It is a wacky thing to do in our culture to do that because we like to, you know, kind of be all that. And we like to, you know, have the authority. And we like to be able to have all the power and, and, uh, and be recognized for that. But what, what God is saying is that we should humble ourselves beneath God's mighty hand so that he could lift us up in due time. Humble ourselves. One of the great keys of worship is bending your knee every day, saying who he is and recognizing that we are not that person. Amen? Bend your knee every day. Make it a lifestyle. Make it a lifestyle. The next is worship supports mental health. It says in Romans, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Interesting. Interesting that we live in a world that needs so much help with our mental capacity and our clarity. We have to take pills. We have to go to therapists. We have to do so many things. I'm not getting on your case if you do this. I understand this place is a mess without God. But this is what the scripture says. You give glory to God and you give thanks to God and your thinking is going to stop stinking. (laughs) It is. It is. If you do this, you will start thinking differently. God will bring healing to your thinking. The next is, all worship is true worship. I'm not, I'm not saying all inclusively. I'm saying there is a very exclusive type of worship that is worship. It's an all worship. It's love God with 
all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength. Love God with all. We live in a casual society. Hey, dude, hey, God, I'm lying down here and I'm hanging out. And, you know, sometimes that's good, but sometimes that's not the all that God's looking for. Sometimes the all is glory to God. And that could be in your house, too. Do you disrupt your house with praise? It's a good idea. It's a good idea to disrupt your day with praise. Love God with all your heart. Give every ounce of your love. I just think of that woman who was washing Jesus' feet with her tears. Every ounce of her love. There was not one drop. Wouldn't it be insane if she was not using all of that emotional connection to what just happened? She was completely set free and forgiven. Wouldn't it be more insane to just say, hey, God, thanks a lot? Don't you think? than to just totally all-out worship with all of our heart, all of our mind. We're good with mind worship because we, we're very, a very thoughtful society. This is a good thing, but we can't leave it with just thinking. We can't leave it with just our ideas of who God is. It needs to be all four of these together. They all work together, our heart, our mind, our soul, our spirit. That's our spirit that we would, we would have um, spirit and truth worship. Our spirit, we'd give our spirit to God. I see people that are worshiping sometimes and I wonder, have, are they right now giving themselves to God? Giving themselves completely, unreservedly, com- every ounce of who they are to the Savior of the world, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Are they doing that? And then with all your strength, all your strength, all worship is true worship. And the last one, and worship causes his glory to change us. It says in the underlying part, and we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever increasing glory. When you're in the presence of God, you are changed. It is impossible, it is impossible to not be changed in the presence of God. So when we say worship, we are not talking about singing a few songs and and clapping and then sitting down. We are not talking about even going home. I've done this. I'll tell you, I have worshiped at home with with a worship, you know, a, a song on my iPhone. And I've, I've done it, and I have not done it in the way that I'm talking about right now. And the presence of God, I didn't usher in the presence of God. I was just thinking, oh, I just need to do this. I need to check it off on my list. I'm the guy who loves worship, so I'll just make sure I do it. And you can't do that. You have to contend for the presence of God. You have to contend for his presence. Without it, it's desolation. With it, it's transformation. And we are changed. We reflect the Lord's glory, and he changes us and heals us. Do you want that today? I want it more and more. As a church, you know, we had our prayer meeting on Friday. It was awesome. As a church, we're praying, God, do something great. This is what he wants to do. He wants to make a church of prayers. And the first type of prayer that he honors is worship. 